Hey, and welcome back to When God Was Queer for episode 4, Mulan and His Comrades. Today, we're going to be discussing a handful of stories which break down the archetype of the warrior woman. There's no doubt that history is full of badass women who refused to relent or cede any ground, to sit down, to be ignored or dismissed. The warrior woman cannot be silenced, and we honor these women. Warriors like Tru Thi Trinh, the Vietnamese freedom fighter who rallied over a thousand of her people to take up arms and fight alongside her. She fought with a sword in each hand, wearing glorious yellow robes and riding atop a war elephant. She was larger than life. In fact, local legend states she was a stunning nine feet tall and had breasts three feet long. When her brother tried to talk her out of the fighting, she said, I only want to ride the wind and walk the waves and save our people from drowning. I want to drive out the aggressors, break the ties of serfdom, and never bend my back to be the concubine of some man. Why should I imitate others and bow my head, stoop over and be a slave? Why resign myself to menial housework? Hearing this, he dropped his former life and joined her to fight by her side. Mm-hmm. We stand. And she's in good company. I mean, among the likes of Bodica. Uh, Bodica was the queen of the Iceni people of the British Isles during the height of the Roman conquest in that area circa AD 60. So the troubles began when Bodica's husband died. He had left his kingdom to his wife and daughters, as was custom, but Rome was having none of that, and they descended upon the Iceni like locusts. Bodica was a stoic, proud queen, and she was not about to be unseated from her throne by these arrogant foreign invaders and their strange language. Her people needed her. They were all too aware of what Roman occupation would end up looking like for them. So, when the Romans arrived to take over, she told them they could kindly fuck off. For this, she was publicly whipped and flogged within an inch of her life, while her daughters were raped by the Roman soldiers in clear view in front of her, all of her people. They were essentially left for dead. Thankfully, some of her people secreted her and her daughters away and nursed them back to health. Now, some would argue that if Bodica was smart, she would have gotten her and her daughters the hell out of Dodge and never looked back. But she was unyieldingly loyal to her people, and she was not about to abandon them to whatever cruel fate the Romans had in store. So, while hidden away and recovering, she plotted and organized and gathered together her people, as well as the other peoples of the Isles who had suffered under the Romans, like the Trinovantes. They watched, and they waited, and they struck when the time was right. The Roman governor, Suetonius, had begun a campaign in the far reaches of Wales when Bodica and her army descended upon Camulodunum, which had been the capital for the Trinovantes. Next, they descended upon London and burned it to the ground, along with Verulamium. By the time she and her people had dominated these three cities, somewhere between 70 and 80,000 Romans were slaughtered by their uprising, including many by torture. She drove the enemy to the point that Nero, Rome's completely sane emperor at the time, actually considered just pulling out of the British Isles altogether. But fate would not be so kind to Bodica and her people. Suetonius, who had run off to the West Midlands to regroup his men, was now ready to fight back. They met on the battlefield, and there were moments in which Bodica and her people looked like they just might pull this whole thing off, despite being desperately outnumbered and outclassed in weapons, armor, and military discipline. 
It's said that the fight had seriously turned against them, and then at some point, General Suetonius and Bodica were face-to-face on the battlefield. She declared that they would never, ever take her alive, that she had been born a free woman, and that she would die a free woman, and she fell upon her own sword. Who doesn't find inspiration in a story like this? Her story became a part of national legend and identity during the English Renaissance and later during the Victorian period. She remains a potent cultural icon in the UK to this day. However, shoehorned into stories like this, into this broader group of warrior women, are just a few heroines who might be heroes after all. Take one of the most obvious, most famous examples of a woman on the battlefield, a lady in armor, St. Joan of Arc. Many people know a little about her, but few know a lot. So, buckle up, kids, this story's a doozy. Alright, picture it. France, 1412. Jeanne d'Arc is born. The Hundred Years' War has been raging for a good 75 years already, between the English and the French for the throne. It turns out the English were a bunch of real bastards about it, because almost all the fighting was happening uh, in France, and England had a practice of going completely scorched earth uh, during and after every battle. So France is getting totally devastated by the ongoing war, but they also are not doing well because they still haven't fully bounced back from the Black Plague. By the time Joan can walk, France is hanging on by a thread. The French king was absolutely insane, completely unable to rule, and causing a lot of damage, honestly, while his brother, the Duke of Orleans, and their cousin, the Duke of Burgundy, were in a blood feud in trying to take over the throne and uh, take over the royal children. Cousin has brother assassinated in 1407, and things start to get really good. You see, in the midst of all of this, Henry V of England uh, swoops in and tries to take over. He invades in 1415, and his timing could not have been better. Obviously, as you've already picked up, there was a whole bunch of infighting with the French, and in nowhere was this more evident than the battles between the uh, factions of the Armagnac and the Burgundians. The Burgundians were led by that cousin guy, John the Fearless, that we talked about, but basically, they were so hell-bent on destroying each other that it was sort of a mutually assured destruction at this point. Now, while the English are burning down the country, in swoop the Burgundians to take Paris and slaughter the Armagnac. Shortly afterwards, Charles VII, who was just a child at the time, signs a peace treaty with his relative, uh, John the Fearless of the Burgundians, and everything is supposed to be fine. They're going to team up. They're going to take on the English. Everybody's going to win. But it turns out that they didn't get all the Armagnac when they when the uh, Burgundians descended upon them. There was like, I don't know, four of them left. And they decide that this meeting that they're having, which is basically a parlay under the guaranteed protection of the king in order for them to have this treaty... Um, yeah, they think that's the best time to go all red wedding. So that's what they do. They go in, they kill everybody, and then it looks like the king betrayed them. So enter the new Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good, who immediately gives Charles the finger, blames him for John's death, calls him a traitor, and makes a deal with the English. They level most of France in short order. Sidebar, what would your name and title be? All hail Dakota the kind of okay. Now, it's 1420, and things take another turn. The Queen of France signs the Treaty of Troyes, handing over the throne to England. 
At this time, there were the two kings, Henry V for England, Charles VI for France, and they're both dead by 1422 within a few months of each other. Henry VI is an infant and now in charge of everybody. By the time Joan comes of age in 1429, huge swaths of France have been completely taken by the English and their asshole buddies, the Burgundians. Basically, all that's left is Orleans, which is a city situated on a river in a prime location for trade, defense, etc. And the English have been sieging the living fuck out of this place and wearing them down little by little. Now, it should be noted that there had been a local prophecy in uh, France for generations that went something like this. France will be lost by a woman and restored by a virgin. And it was already halfway fulfilled, as the queen had signed over the throne. So let's check in with our, our miraculous virgin, shall we? Joan grew up in an isolated, rural bit of eastern France, which had remained loyal to the crown. At the age of 13, she experienced her first ecstatic vision. Standing in her father's garden, she saw Archangel Michael, St. Catherine of Alexandria, and St. Margaret of Antioch, and she wept at their beauty. They told her to drive out the English and take Charles VII, a boy not much older than her, to Reims for the consecration. She tried to talk to the people in charge. She did try. She was 16 and demanding to see the king, so she didn't get very far. She waited about a year and then proclaimed that there would be a devastating reversal at the Battle of Rovray, and no one believed her. Several days later, the news came. She had been correct. So she gets the meeting with the king, and she's like, Hey, king, I'm an illiterate farm girl who has visions, and several saints told me I gotta be on the front lines of the war, and I'll get you your throne back. And he's like, I got nothing else going on. Sounds legit. So she heads to Orleans and arrives on April 29th, 1429. Dude in charge barely tolerates her existence and won't tell her shit about what's happening. Typical sexist stuff. He doesn't tell her about the meetings, yet there she is. He didn't tell her about the battles. Hey, there she was. And during her brief time with the army, the siege suddenly changes. They were quickly regaining the ground they had lost and they were expanding their base of operations. On May 7th, she led the men on an assault against the main English stronghold in the region and came out victorious, as officially the siege was over. She was wounded in battle, by the way, taking an arrow between her neck and shoulder. Uh, she said she would provide a sign or a miracle at Orleans, and the siege lifting got all the prominent clergy, like the archbishop, to support her and affirm that this was a sign of divine intervention and blessing from God, as them being on the right side of the war, if you will. Uh, military leadership fell in line as well after Orleans. She went on to plan and help carry out a series of stunning victories, which constituted a sea change in the dynamics of the war, and by July, they had arrived at Reims, where Charles VII was consecrated as the true King of France. What followed was a series of mixed victories until May 1430, when she was captured in an ambush. She tried several times to escape, and the Armagnacs tried several times to rescue her, but it was all to no avail. The trial commenced, and it was so egregious in its bias, and just how many standard rules it repeatedly broke, under which legal proceedings were considered legitimate, that it got to the point where even English loyalists of both clergy and military leadership started calling out against it, but they were punished with death or exile. Joan of Arc was charged with heresy. 
Now, here's the thing about that time period. Heresy sounds like a big deal, but it was only a capital crime in the case of a repeat offense. So, what did they get her on? Tax evasion? Not doing enough Hail Marys? No. Cross-dressing. She refused to take off her armor and would not wear a dress or a skirt or whatever the guards would give her. She explained this, supposedly in the trial, as the only measure of protection that she had against men who would come into her cell at night. The trial was deemed so criminally corrupt that its documents were actually used in her defense in the eventual case for her canonization. On May 30th, 1431, Joan of Arc was tied to a tall pillar in Rome. Having already been convicted guilty, she was to be burnt at the stake. She asked the clergy to hold a crucifix before her so that she could gaze upon it as she prayed. It was custom. You gotta understand this. When you hear people being burned at the stake, it's been custom in basically every place that's ever done it that you would be hanged and your neck would be broken, or your throat would be slit, or you'd be strangled. Something would be done where you'd be rendered dead, or at least completely kind of prone, before they would set up the burning at the stake pyre situation. And this is because burning at the stake was more so used as a symbolic act in order to drive out sin, uh, or to purify the people, or to uh, humiliate and uh, destroy the legacy of whoever it was that, you know, it was happening to. Um, but it was really never usually the cause of death. It was more a symbolic act. This wasn't the case for Joan. Joan of Arc was burned alive. When it was over, the English raked the coals to expose her charred body so that no one could claim she had escaped or was alive due to some allegedly false miracles. They then burned the body a few more times, collected all of the ashes, and dumped them into the river to prevent anyone from being able to get any peace and then holding it as a sacred relic. Later, the executioner, a man named Geoffrey Thurage, said, quote, I greatly fear to be damned, for I have burned a holy woman. In her history book, transgender warriors, the genderqueer activist Leslie Feinberg argues that the historical evidence shows that this saint, Joan of Arc, was not just some warrior woman who took up armor for practicality, but a sort of third gender indigenous shaman, and the court documents about her refer to local peasants' beliefs that her gender variance was sacred in and of itself, which was part of why the Catholic Church saw her as so threatening to its power. This makes a ton of sense as to Joan's gender variance, ecstatic experiences, the only remaining accounts of which we have, uh, which are the, the church-sanctioned ones. Now, this episode is called Mulan and His Comrades, which, I have to admit, is a bit of an intentional misnomer. 
Of course it makes sense that many a transmasculine individual, and trans people in general, have seen at least a basic reflection in the Disney version of her story. I mean, come on, when will, when will my reflection show who I am inside? However, as much as the subtext may seem blatantly obvious to us in this specific depiction, actual historic accounts of Hua Mulan show that she was not just very obviously a woman, but one who observed and respected the classical gender norms of her time. She fought for 12 years because her father could not, and she fought valiantly. Once victory had been achieved, she immediately refused any reward or renown. She simply asked for a camel to take her home, where she would don her old clothes and resume her old life. Of course, this is quite disappointing for many of us. However, I already told you we're not going to search or settle for scraps. So if you're bummed out by the true nature of Mulan and her mythology, have I got a story for you. Gender variance is a standard feature in ancient India's rich canon of myths and legends, and there's actually a major hero who doesn't just take the place we held for Mulan, he surpasses above and beyond it. Enter Shikandi. In the ancient Indian epic, the Mahabharata, there's a hero who is truly like no other. His name is Shikandi, son of Drupada, king of Panchala. In various tellings of the story, Shikandi's gender, sex, and sexuality may vary. However, there are two main ways this tale is told in sort of a choose-your-own-adventure gender edition. The first telling is based entirely on the concept that Shikandi was a woman named Amba in his past life. The other way the story is told is altogether without any mention of Amba or a past life, and it's this story which is much more clearly a reflection of the trans man or transmasculine person's navigation of society's perils. So, who's Amba? Well, she was the oldest daughter of the King of Kashi. Apparently, this king forgot to write a few invitations to the nobility of Hastinapur, a neighboring city. Well, Bhishma, who is the son of the Ganges and supposedly a nice guy, absolutely loses his shit at this impropriety and then decides he's going to kidnap Amba and her two sisters, Ambika and Ambalika, when they're in the middle of their Swayamvara, which is basically the man buffet where they get to choose their husband. So he not only runs off with the three princesses, he defeats several other kings who are like, whoa there, daughter taker, put them back. But Bhishma runs off with the princesses to present them for marriage to Vichitra who's the crown prince of not getting invited. Uh, I mean, Hastinapur. The prince marries two of the sisters, but our girl Amba gets out of it by proclaiming she is in love with Salwa, one of the defeated kings, and could not marry anyone else. Bhishma's actually pretty cool about this. He just decides to send her to Salwa with a bunch of fanfare, hoping to avoid any kind of larger conflict. But Salwa would not accept her, even if she begged, because his shame in being defeated by Bhishma on, in battle was too much, so he sent her back. Trying another route, she demanded that Bhishma marry her according to his dharma as an honored warrior, but he rejects her due to his vow of celibacy. At this point, she's 
really honestly enraged and utterly humiliated. She's a gorgeous princess, she's got tons of money, and she can throw it back for a real one. So what the hell's going on here? She tried to stir the other kings to wage war with Bishma to make him marry her, or at least kill the fucking guy, but seeing how many other kings he had already defeated, they all backed out. She even convinced his guru, but he couldn't even talk Bishma into it. So she resorted to severe penance and prayer to Lord Shiva for a boon that could bring out Bhishma's death. And eventually, he answered her, telling her she would definitely get justice, but in a future incarnation. Hearing this, she immediately does the logical, sensible thing, and she kills herself. But she wasn't born into the right life immediately, so she kills herself again and again, and again, and then she continues like this until she's like, finally born to King Drupada as his daughter, Shikandini, and this would be the right life. Now, if you're going the no Amba route in your Choose Your Own Adventure Gender Edition, just start here like nothing else happened. At this time, the Kurukshetra War was raging. Shikandini began training as a warrior from childhood as Panchala, her father's kingdom, did not practice any real gender discrimination. However, when she joined the war effort, her family came up with a new male identity for her so that she could fight without being some major target for ransom or death as royalty. She became the fiercest warrior in the land and bravely fought unceasingly until she finally was able to meet Bhishma on the battlefield. He immediately recognized Shikandini as Amba, or in the second version, as assigned female at birth, and mocked her, saying that he would never fight a woman. So she slayed his whack ass. And after it's all over, Shikandini, who has been fighting and living under the male identity Shikandi this whole time, basically saves the kingdom, gets the princess, everything is great, they get married, and the wedding is the grandest celebration in living memory. However, on their wedding night, the princess sees Shikandi naked for the first time and loses her absolute shit, calling for the guards and getting her father involved. She tells everyone that Shikandi is a liar, an imposter, and demands her father's men hunt him down. Shikandi makes a butt-ass naked run for it deep into the forest and in his devastation prepares to kill himself. And then, a yaksha crosses paths with our hero. Yakshas are nature spirits, and they can be kind and benevolent, or they can be mischievous and unpredictable. This Yaksha, named Thunakarna, saw our boy was in distress and sat down to ask him, Hey man, what's the problem? Shikandi explained everything he was up against, and the Yaksha listened intently, nodding gently. When he was finished explaining his plight, he noticed that the forest spirit was looking at him kind of oddly. Finally, Stunakarna spoke and offered to swap genitals with Shikandi, and he wanted nothing in return. Shikandi knew this was probably too good to be true, but just then he could hear the king's men getting closer and closer, so he accepted the deal. The king's men were totally dumbfounded when they discovered the naked prince in the clearing. They approached him gently and woke him, asking him if he was hurt, did he know how he had gotten there, was he a sleepwalker? Shikandi slowly got up as the king and the princess made it to the clearing. The princess was screeching at everyone and stirring her father into an absolute frenzy. Such a cacophony! And then silence. Everyone just kind of stood around looking at Shikandi's fine-ass naked body and wondering just what the hell the princess was trying to accomplish. The princess herself fainted upon the sight of her naked husband. The king apologized and earnestly begged his son-in-law to keep the whole debacle between the two of them. And after that, everybody lived happily ever after.
Well, maybe. Some tellings of the story include Stunakarna last minute throwing in a caveat that at some point he's gonna need his dick back, but when the Queen of the Akshas finds out what he's done, she forces him to go dickless forever as punishment. So, either way, Shikandi gets to keep his beautiful brand new dick. There's actually a similarly fierce warrior who would go on to be known as one of ancient Greece's epic heroes, held in the same high esteem as Achilles or Perseus. He's one of my all-time favorites, and his name was Canius. He was Greek, more specifically, he was a Lapith hero of Thessaly. He would father Coronus, king of the Lapiths, and one of the Argonauts. So what's he doing on this list? Well, our boy Canius was assigned female at birth. Actually, he lived comfortably as a woman for a number of years, named Canis. But then one fateful day, Poseidon got a wild hair up his ass and decided to double down on the brotherly business of raping all the mortals. So he snatched Canis up and he did what he did best. When it was over, he dropped Canis back off on land and went about his shitty day being shitty. Well, Canis was having absolutely none of this and decided to call out to Nemesis, the goddess of divine retribution. Now, as much as Nemesis, who, P.S., is totally the blueprint for the current depictions of Archangel Michael, uh, look it up, as, as much as she loved doling out the pain to those who dodged accountability or broke their oaths or escaped the clutches of justice, she was also a very real, very loyal agent to Zeus. Poseidon's brother, and uh, if you don't know, basically the OG rapist of everything and everyone? Seriously, like three quarters of Greek myths feature Zeus raping somebody for the story's impetus. Well, get this. Zeus not only decides to step in, he calls together the Olympians and publicly condemns Poseidon for his actions. Can you imagine? Uh, bro, you gotta stop raping the mortals. Zeus, are you fucking serious right now? Look, we've had another complaint. It's the third one this month. I don't know what you're doing to them, but three complaints in a month is ludicrous. You're making us look bad. You're going to have to do something to resolve it. Anyway, Poseidon begrudgingly finds Canis and approaches her. Immediately, Canis draws a dagger, spits, and curses the evil man. Well, that's no way to treat a god, Poseidon muttered blithely. Ugh, I knew it. Damn you, Canis shouted. Look, I'm here to make it better. I'm granting you a boon, a wish, anything you want. Take a second to think about it and let me... Make me a man so that I can never be raped again, Canis blurted out, not sure if she was seizing the moment or losing her mind. Poseidon just stood there looking at her for a moment, and then there was a flash of light and Canis was waking up on the ground. Poseidon was gone, and Canis, who was now Canius found his body was totally transformed. So, Canius got up, removed his maiden's robes, and walked naked and full of hope into the world. Years later, Canius became a household name in ancient Greece. He was the hero of the people, performing uncanny feats while remaining wholly undefeated in battle. You see, Poseidon had maybe misinterpreted Canius's request. He made him a man... But he also made him a man who was entirely impenetrable. Now, neither sword nor spear, arrow nor javelin could pierce his skin. So, leaving him unaffected by any foe on the battlefield, he was undefeated. And so, he went on to lead Greece to many victories over their most lethal enemies. It was truly glorious. At some point, there was a particularly nasty blood feud happening between the Lapiths and a neighboring band of centaurs. 
Now, it should be noted, if you're not familiar, that centaurs are probably not what you think. I mean, yes, they're half horse, half man, but the ancient Greeks, for them, centaurs were the living embodiment of everything that one should strive not to be in any moral or ethical sense. The ancient Greeks constantly sought moderation in all things, in an effort to temper what they saw as the base, savage nature of man. The centaurs, along with the satyrs, were seen as almost the singular embodiment of that savage, untamable nature. They were prone to senseless violence and wanton lust. They would drink heavily and maraud through the countryside, raping and pillaging town and village. However, that does not mean that they were all totally irredeemable. Chiron, the wisest and justest of all the centaurs, as he was known, was intelligent, civilized, and kind. Uh, he was the child of Kronos and Philyria. He taught the youth, specifically training up the young heroes of ancient Greece. As he was raised himself by Apollo and Artemis, he was taught and would teach medicine, herbalism, music, archery, hunting, gymnastics, and prophecy. His specialty was botany and pharmacy, which he was said to have invented. He's known for his uniquely kind-hearted pacifistic nature, and he would teach everyone from Heracles and our boy Canius to Dionysus and Asclepius, the god of medicine. Tragically, he would always seek peace among his centaur kin, attempting to civilize and educate them, but to no avail. He tried to help the Lapiths and the neighboring centaur tribes find peace between them, yet his efforts seemed to be in vain. Over and over, they would go to battle and come away without any clear winner locked into a lethal stalemate. Yet, Caneus remained steadfast, confident in his ability to overcome, still undefeated in battle. And then one day, in the midst of a particularly terrible skirmish, Caneus was locked in battle with the leader of the centaurs, Latrius, when Latrius thought it would be a great idea to loudly mock Caneus for having not always been a man. Furious, Canius struck such a blow in, in, in Latrius' side that he almost cut the guy in half, much to the horror and chagrin of his comrades, who immediately turned and fled. That would be the last they saw of the centaurs, Canius told his men. Canius had heard tell of the Caledonian bear wandering an area nearby, and so he set out to the rumored location, excited to hunt the mythical beast. When he arrived at the spot that had been marked out by the strange traveler who had been boasting at the baths earlier that day, he could immediately tell something was off. Canius had the hunt in his blood. He bent down to make sense of the odd tracks in the clearing, and just as it became clear to him that they were centaur tracks, there was a thunderous roar and a deafening crash. It was a trap. The centaurs had led him there to be rid of Canius once and for all. And if they couldn't stab him, impale him, or gut him, they thought, we'll crush him. So far into the earth, he'll have to just fall straight into Tartarus itself. From the cliffs above the clearing, they rolled dozens of pine tree trunks and boulders on top of Canius, crushing him. To quote the Argonautica, they could neither force him to yield nor yet dispatch him, but unbowed, unbroken, he went into the earth down under, crushed by a shattering hail of heavy pine trunks. The centaurs waited until long after the dust had settled to make sure that he was actually gone. I mean, this guy had killed so many of them that they just really, they, they were desperate. One of the centaurs had the idea that they should just roll away all the tree trunks and the rubble and really make sure that his mangled body was really, truly lifeless, proof that they had finally won. 
And as they labored, digging and digging, they had nearly reached the bottom of the newly created pit when out of the rubble exploded a great golden swan, or crane in some tellings, which blinded the centaurs and flew off to the heavens. When they could see again, they rolled away the last tree trunk to find there was nothing left. No body, no blood, no bones, just earth. Now, I I do want you to know not all of these stories that we discussed today have to do with the warrior aspect of masculinity or specifically trans masculinity. In many myths from around the world, patrilineal succession is such a key concern when it comes to the idea of having children, specifically in the preference of quote-unquote male children and their ability to function as an heir. For the ancient Greeks and in many other ancient societies, a common trope in the myths around childbirth occurred in the miracles sought out by humans and performed by the gods in changing the gender slash sex of a child almost exclusively from female to male. It's also important to remember that in these deeply patriarchal societies, there were stories of women choosing maleness not out of any true desire based on personal gender, but due to the inherent dignity and freedom that being a man would afford them. The following three stories feature these common myths told three different ways. So, Mestra, who was sometimes known as Hypermestra, was a shapeshifter. She was the daughter of Erisichthon of, Thess- of Thessaly, and just like Canius, she had been raped by Poseidon, and in this case, she- he also granted a boon, but she had chosen the ability to change her shape at will. The thing is, Poseidon is actually somehow not the biggest asshole in this story. You see, before Mestra had even been born, her father was already getting himself into trouble. King Erisichthon was a really shitty king, and a blatant example of unbridled hubris. This was made demonstrable by his inexplicable choice to cut down an entire sacred grove to Demeter so that he could build a feast hall. Now, look, maybe he didn't think that this was such a bad idea, and and held up a frantic pace, quickly felling the tree after tree after tree in the grove, but then production stopped entirely. In the middle of the sacred grove was a stunning regal oak, festooned with wreaths, each representing an answered prayer. His men refused to even touch the tree, let alone go near it. So the king, wise as ever, grabbed an axe and started hacking away at the trunk. However, the tree was home to a very important dryad who spoke out against the king. Demeter, my mother, come and avenge me, even as this evil man spills my life blood in his shameless greed. Do this and comfort me in my death. At this, the men were all taken aback, all but the king, who was ruthless beyond compare, as he continued to hack away at the tree, even as it bled as if it were human. At that moment, the few remaining trees also began to speak with one voice, the voice of the goddess Demeter. My child, who would cut down my sacred trees, stay your hand. You are the child of your parents' many prayers. Lay down your axe and listen to your men, lest Demeter be angered, whose holy place you would make desolate. At this, the man closest to him laid a hand on the axe to stop him. In response, King Erisichthon shouted, Take this for pious thoughts, and he swung the axe, striking the man's head clean from his body, and in one fluid motion began again hacking at the most holy tree in the grove with his shameless violence. 
Nemesis had recorded every word and action and flew to attend Demeter, who commanded her to seek out and stir into action her ancient enemy, Fomis, who is hunger. Fomis entered his bedchamber that night, and she wrapped herself in his arms, smothering his mouth, his throat, and his lungs, and filling him with the ceaseless craving, the eternal hunger. And then... From that day forward, his ravenous, undying hunger would know no limits and no bounds. He would try to consume anything and everything that he could, yet the more that he consumed, the more his hunger would grow. He bankrupted the crown to buy all the food in the land that he could, but still, he was hungry. He lost everything, and still, he was hungry. Once his daughter was of age, she was snatched away by Poseidon, and after he had violated her, she cried out against him, and again he was forced by the other gods to grant a boon. She wished to be able to change form whenever she pleased, and so he granted it to her. Now, when her father caught her one day changing her shape, he immediately enslaved his daughter and forced her to use her abilities to satisfy his insatiable drive. He would sell her, the way men have always sold women, and then at some point, usually in the most frightening way possible, she would change into a man and make her way back home. Sometimes she would become an animal in order to escape. Once, she had to become a tree. But every time, she would head back home, only to be sold again and again, and she only did this out of her true loyalty and love to her father. But eventually, even she would be worn so, so worn down that her love for her raving father would be outweighed by her simple want for a happy life. So, one day, she changed herself into a man and refused to change back and left the remains of his kingdom in order to wander the world, searching for a new home. Abandoned and destitute, driven mad and raving, the fallen King Erisichthon would eventually tear himself apart and consume himself in his hunger until nothing remained. Our next story takes us to Crete. There lived a poor old couple, Ligdus and Telethusa, who were desperately wanting of a child. However, they knew that they would be unable to afford a dowry should that child be a girl. Ligdus came to the conclusion that so many others had come to before them. If the child was a girl, they would have to abandon it in the wilderness. Telethusa's despair was bottomless at this thought, until one night when she was visited in her dreams by Isis, Anubis, Bubastus, and Apis. The quartet of gods greeted her warmly and told her that everything would be okay just as long as she accepted whatever happened after the child's birth. They would assist her and make sure that her and her child would make it, but she just had to roll with the punches, and roll she did. By some miracle, she did get pregnant, even in her old age, and when the time came, she gave birth to a baby girl. Remembering the gods' words, she immediately hid the baby's birth-assigned sex from her husband and went on to raise the child as a boy, saying nothing. Ligdus, beaming with pride at the thought of a son, an heir, named him after his own father, Iphis. Interestingly, in ancient Greece, Iphis was a gender-neutral name, which seemed to work for Telethusa. Everything went smoothly through Iphis' childhood, yet as adolescence approached, Telethusa became worried. Ligdus arranged for his son to marry the beautiful Ianthe, the, the daughter of Telestus. The two quickly fell in love the way only young people may. 
Iphis, genuinely in love with Fiante, yet not ignorant to the complexity of the situation, prayed to Juno every single day for aid, yet nothing happened. The day before the wedding, Telethusa took Iphis to the temple of Isis and called out to the great goddess, Isis, queen of all, you came to me in my dreams so long ago, and you gave me your wise counsel. I have heeded your every word until this very moment, but danger is close and we are under threat. Please finish what has been started and bless my son with your touch. It was in that moment that Isis, hearing this prayer, turned her face toward the young boy, and with a wave of her hand, he was instantly made whole, so that he and his mother could live in happiness and security. The two youths went on to be married and lived happily ever after. They had many children and lived full lives, and their marriage was blessed by Juno and Venus and Hymenaeus. Iphis uh, would go on to travel the world and fight in several battles, but only when necessary. He was brave enough, but he became much more known and held in high regard for his good nature and his generosity in serving the ill and the poor. Later, in another part of Crete, and called Festus, a couple was at odds. You see... Galatia was pregnant, but Lampras was staunch in his declaration that he would only accept a male child. Well, one day, while Lampras, who was a sheepherd and a dickhead, was away tending his cattle, Galatia finally gave birth to a baby girl. Panicked and unsure of what to do, she swaddled the baby and went to the seer in her village, a wizened old crone who knew many things. The seer told her to give the baby a man's name and to tell her, her husband she had given him a son. And this she did. Of course, everything was fine until the advent of adolescence. Once again, panicked and unsure of what to do, she sought out the seer. The crone was even more wizened these days. She could no longer see a hand in front of her face, but all the more she could see the truth to many more mysteries. She told Galatia that her son would grow up to be an impressive man, a warrior of great renown who would one day save Crete from the worst danger it had ever faced. Galatia was thrilled to hear this, but was unsure what was po how that was possible given the current situation. The seer told her to go to Leto's sanctuary and make her case in prayer and sacrifices and that everything would be fine. So Galatia went to the sanctuary of Leto, the great mother of Apollo and Artemis, and called out to her, Leto, great mother of all mothers, I need your help. My baby came out of me as if she was a daughter, yet I prayed for a son and a son I shall have. Dearest Leto, I know it can be done. I have always heard of the great hero Caneus, of the prophet Tiresias, and the shape-changing Mestra. I have heard the stories of young lovers like Iphis, and I know of the sacred pools of Hermaphroditus. Please, have mercy on another mother who just wants a good life for her child, and do this for me. Oh, the great mother, look down upon her. She saw Galatia in her sanctuary. She smelled the incense and witnessed her, her sacrifices and her offerings. She heard her prayers, and she took pity upon her and granted her wish. Not long after this, Lucippus grew into a stunning, impressive man and would go on to fight valiantly for his people. A time would come for him to battle invaders and then again to battle the monsters of the sea. He did it all and he made his people proud. But Lucippus never forgot the truth about his birth, nor what his mother had done for him. So when his wife came to give him seven daughters, he cherished and celebrated each one with his whole heart. The story spread. And in commemoration of the event, the people of Festus called her Leto Phytia, 
Leto the Grower, as she made it possible for Luchippus to grow his penis. They also established a major feast in Leto's honor, called the Ecdesia, meaning to undress, just as Luchippus had shed the clothes of a woman in order to be a man. It also became custom for the women of Festus to lie next to the statue the night before their wedding as they prayed to Leto for blessings in their marital life. For our last story today, I wanted to tell you about a little-known Eastern European practice which has been around for centuries and is still performed today. Patriarchal societies are inherently oppressive towards anyone assigned female at birth, and how an AFAB individual chooses to navigate that oppressive structure will vary based on what options are available and personal circumstances and preferences. However, the ability for a woman to choose to relinquish her womanhood in favor of masculinity or of manhood in order to attain social mobility and freedom is actually a pretty common practice throughout the world. It's a key factor in the dialogue we have as trans people when we discuss the dynamics of privilege which trans men and many transmasculine people enjoy in Western society. So now it's off to the Balkans, where we will meet the Bernesha, known in English as the Sworn Virgins. These people are assigned female at birth. They go on to take a vow of chastity and wear male clothing in order to live as men in patriarchal northern Albanian society. Uh, also, Kosovo and Montenegro, to a lesser extent, the practice does exist or has existed in other parts of Western of the Western Balkans, including Bosnia, Dalmatia, which is current day Croatia, Serbia, and northern Macedonia. A person can become a sworn virgin at any age, out of personal desire, or to satisfy their parents, or some obligation. There's a specific ritual one must undergo in order to become a sworn virgin, namely the swearing. One swears an irrevocable oath in front of twelve village or tribal elders to adopt the role and practice celibacy in honor of God. Once this has been done, the sworn virgin is free to live as a man. He is referred to using he-him pronouns, dresses in male clothing, uses a male name, plays music, sings, carries a gun, smokes, drinks, takes on male work, freely associates with other men, and may act as a head of household. And what part does the community play in all this? Their role is translated thus. His true sex will never again, upon pain of death, be alluded to, either in his presence or out of it. Cool. Now, this, of course, begs the eternal question. What happens if the vow is broken? Death. Or at least that's how it used to be. Basically, ultimate extreme shunning all the way to flat-out exile. However, it is still possible to take back the vows if the motivation or obligation behind the original choice to take the vows no longer exists. However, this is rarely, if ever, exercised. Currently, there's estimated to be at least 40 and maybe up to several hundred sworn virgins left in Albania today. Now, here's where the story gets really good. In the Balkans, like in Sicily, there are blood feuds. So, one of the most common, if not the most openly discussed motivations to become a sworn virgin was the desire to carry out a vendetta against another family, especially if your own clan had suffered losses or even been wiped out altogether. It should be noted that the sworn virgins were not forced to perform masculinity in their dress, so there are many folk tales and legends which go like this. 
A young woman is the only surviving member of her family or clan after a desperate blood feud. She takes the oaths and establishes her new life of independence, and she plots. Slowly but surely, his plan comes into focus as he is armed to the teeth in weaponry and access, and then one day he ventures out, dressed once again as a maiden, an assassin in plain sight, and she pays a visit to the sworn enemies of her, her, her ruined family's name, and she methodically blots out each and and every member of the family who cost her everything. Blood feuds and blood money were taken immensely seriously as not only a fact of life, but as a worthy or noble motivation for a massacre of this nature. They were tracked through the accounting of blood money, and in this way, a dead woman counted as a half-life, whereas a man or a sworn virgin counted as a whole life. I want to thank everyone for joining me again for another round of storytelling. I hope you found some myths here, which help you navigate your own sense of self and of the world around us just a little easier. Please join us next week for Episode 5, The Evolution of Venus, in which we will explore the continuum of ancient goddesses aligned with the planet Venus and their deep influence on our ideas of the sacred feminine today. But for now, be gay, do crime. The gods are always watching. Bye.